You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Ask if you will please open your Bible to the second chapter of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. In just a few moments, I want to speak to you on the issue of being delivered. And I, I do need to speak some words of um, instruction. I want you to see my heart in these next few moments as we deal with this very important issue. If you're with us this evening for the first time in quite a while, maybe the first time ever, uh, we have been on a journey for the past several weeks. We've been looking at specific qualities that ought to be present in the life of every person. The title of the series, For the Rest of My Life, because you see, you can't do anything about the past, you can't unlive it, but you can do something about the future. And so the encouragement is that you, for the rest of your life, would make specific decisions about the kind of person you want to be before God. And we've looked at the issue of devotion. For the rest of my life, I will be a devoted man. And then discipline, a disciplined man. Diligence, a diligent person. Direction, a person who has direction from God. Decisive, a person who decides to do what God has shown him. A daring individual, a person who's willing to step, step out upon what the Word of God says, period. And not only a person who's daring, but a person who is discerning. And then in our most recent service this morning, we looked at a very, very important issue, an issue that I believe the Lord uh, uh, requires of every one of us a determination to be and to do all that he has set before us. Now, this evening, I want to deal with the issue of deliverance. For the rest of my life, I would like uh, to be a person who experiences day by day the deliverance God has for me. The rest of my life, I want to be a delivered man. I'm going to have to explain that in just a few moments. But my heart's prayer is that at the end of this service, that many of you would say this very evening, that's a choice that I will make. I want to be a person who is day by day experiencing the deliverance that the Lord God makes available to me in the name of Jesus, because of his shed blood on the cross of Calvary, because of the authority that we have in the Word of God. Now, what I have tried to do, and I, I'm just going to be as open with you as, as God will permit me to be. I mean, absolutely open. What I am trying to do this evening is to bring the whole issue of deliverance down to not only an understandable issue for you, but to, to set it before you in such a fashion that you will experience it, that you will actually participate in it. The whole issue of deliverance has been fraught with a lot of poor doctrine as well as a lot of strong encouragement in the right way to experience deliverance. I don't intend tonight to give, for instance, a, a teaching or a preaching about uh, spiritual warfare. That in itself is a tremendously significant issue. I do not intend to deal with with the issue of what is happening in the spirit realm. We know that there are demonic spirits and we know that there is such a thing as demonization. In some instances, it's actually possession. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, you can be possessed 
of demon spirits. What we used to laugh about as children is not something that's a, a fairy tale or a myth. It is a reality. If you are not owned by the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be owned by, and all of your efforts will be owned by the adversary. And there's a sense in which a possession is a very real thing, and I don't intend this evening to go into that. As a matter of fact, I find that the more that people know about that sometimes, the less they speak about it. Some years ago, my, uh, my heart began to cry out over in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, actually, when I was a seminary student in Texas, and I began to ask God to teach me about this whole issue of spiritual warfare and deliverance and, and demonism, and um, the Lord began to open our eyes there in Texas, and then we came here and we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma and through a series of events and, and through an actual court hearing in which uh, some of us debated uh, what was happening in a local high school where a man who vowed to be an incarnated demonic spirit was teaching a course on the devil in one of our public schools. The room was draped in black crepe. As a part of the course, the students had, this is a high school, would have to read books like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. And uh, as a matter of fact, as a part of the course syllabus, they had to write a contract between themselves and some or an important figure and the devil explaining why a person could benefit from selling their soul to the devil. Three of the students in that class committed suicide. And it wasn't until actually the, the uh, school board refused to rule it out. It wasn't until we actually got one of our church members on the school board and one of our other church members in as the vice principal in charge of a curriculum that we got the course out of the school. And in the midst of that, uh, people would show up at our church. And, and I remember sitting across the desk from a man who was absolutely terrified, had been a part of a witch's coven. It had been his, his, his responsibility that that day to take a person's life as a part of a sacrifice. And he had failed to do it. He had tried to aim his car in such a fashion that he would look like a mistake and drive through the yard of some people who had some children. But God's angels protected those children. He ended up hitting a tree. They took him, stripped him, tied him to a tree, poured goat's blood over him. And uh, he had somehow escaped and was in my office saying, can I be delivered of this? And I had good news for him. God then took us to Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, uh, we live in an area where one in every eight of the homes was occupied by a practitioner of witchcraft. And he took us to what you might call a seminary class in demonism and demon, uh, demonization. And uh, I remember that it was just in the atmosphere. In fact, when you would fly in and out of that area, you could literally sense demonism hanging as a, a veil. A, a, there was a pallor over the area. You could sense the heaviness because of demonism came back to the United States and the um, very first church I went to pastor there in Denver. Uh, the week before I got there, there was a sacrifice on the altar of the church of an animal. People had broken in and they had left the head of this animal on the front porch of one of our deacons and I began to realize that I was in an atmosphere in America just as thoroughly steeped in demonism as the environment I left in Africa. I remember saying uh, in a... Uh, a crusade service in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I think we have some guests here from Albuquerque tonight. And I remember saying in the First Baptist Church there uh, something about the fact that there were ritual sacrifices taking place in, uh, in America today. And those ritual sacrifices perhaps number in the thousands. And um, I said, you know, some of you all may, may question that. And right after the service, a physician 
and a nurse, both from the same hospital. She was charged nurse in intensive care. The physician was one of the physicians of that hospital. And they met with me afterwards and said, we have a man in our intensive care ward just now uh, who is dying because he has ingested human flesh at a ritual sacrifice. And uh, so I want you to hear carefully what I'm about to say. And Sean, I'm going to ask you, if you will, thank you and some of our deacons to help out, please. You know, the devil will do anything he can to keep you distracted or even to keep the preacher of the word distracted when it gets to this issue. The devil doesn't like the name of Jesus. The devil doesn't like anything about the crucifixion of Jesus, especially the fact that Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. The devil hates the word of God. But tonight, you see, I'm not here to give you some kind of lecture on demonism. It's real. You need to recognize it. You need to know some about it. And I've attempted over the years to teach you some about that as your pastor. Warfare, demonism, deliverance. Our Lord Jesus delivered people. And we know that his followers, uh, in his name, through his authority, experienced times when people were delivered. But I'm speaking about a particular kind of deliverance this evening, all right? And I want you to just to concentrate. I want you just to focus your attention this evening on this issue. A particular kind of deliverance is the issue this evening. I'm speaking specifically to those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus, but who would admit tonight that there is an area or there are areas in your life in which you find yourself constantly losing the battle. You have conviction in your heart that it is sin or sinful. It is to you almost like a bully. No matter how many resolutions you have made, no matter how many times you said, God, now this time I'm really serious, it is almost as if you heard these words in your ears. Go ahead and make that resolution, but you're going to end up just like you were before. Areas in your life in which you feel like you are losing, you want to win, but for some reason you cannot win. And I'm going to ask you to consider those areas in your life. Now, I know of specific areas in my life where I do battle. And I'm sure that you do. And I'm going to ask for a showing of hands. You know, this would be meaningless to you if you say, oh, I never do battle and I never lose and I'm always living a perfect life. But how many of us tonight would be so bold as to say, Brother Tom, I believe that I truly know Jesus as my Savior, but there are specific areas in my life where I find myself often, more often than not, losing the battle. Would you raise your hand? Just go ahead and be honest. I find myself losing the battle. All right, thank you. It may be something in your thoughts. It may be a habit. It may have to do with a sinful practice. It may be that you find yourself enslaved to something. It may be that um, try as you might, you cannot avoid certain places where the devil especially seems to attack you, and now you find yourself almost drawn to them. And you say, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to do that. I don't want to think that. I, I don't, I, you know, and God is convicting you about it because you're his child. Now, what I want to do is speak about that kind of deliverance. How can you gain the victory? Now, I'm not going to give a lesson on strongholds, although strongholds are certainly a reality. 
The devil can set up camp in your heart. That's right. One of his emissaries can set up camp in your heart if you give him permission, if you say, I'm willing to do this. I know it's wrong, but I willingly participate in this. And he can just sort of set up shop in your life. You belong to the Lord God, but you have given the instruments of your body over to the use of the devil, you see, at that moment, or his emissaries. He is the adversary. That's why the Apostle Paul doesn't say a believer in Christ has it easy. He says, listen, it's not that you don't wrestle. He said, you just don't know what you're wrestling against. You think you're wrestling against flesh and blood, but you need to wake up to the fact that you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in the atmosphere. I could show you how there literally is a hierarchy uh, of spirits. Just as we have authority structures in our own society, God has authority structure in heaven among the angelic hosts. There are authority structures among the demonic spirits. And so I'm not speaking so much trying to tell you what a stronghold is and how to recognize a stronghold. What I know is this. You know you have a need. And you and I know that we want to do something about the need in our life. We know that in some areas we are losing and we want to know how to win. And so I want to bring this down to the most simple terms possible so that we can be victorious in this area, so that we can live the life that Christ wants us to live. There's an interesting scripture. I have not ever, to my knowledge, I have not ever seen this scripture in any way affiliated with this whole issue of spiritual warfare, how to win over sin. But I believe it is a crucial text if we want to bring this whole issue down to a, a simple, understandable issue and then know what we can do in the most simplest terms, know what we can do in order to win over sin. So you have your Bible open to Colossians 2, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 6. Actually, I'd like for you to look at verses 6 and 7, and verse 6 is the text for the message this evening. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. I look up here just for a moment. Those words mean this. The way you got saved is the way you are to live day by day. As you have received Jesus Christ the Lord in that same fashion, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Father, how I pray your Holy Spirit will bring reality to our hearts tonight. Show us truth, dear God. Show us how we can win over sin, especially those sins which are like bully sins, those sins that we find ourselves most often giving way to. Teach us, dear Lord, how to win. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Keep your Bible open to this verse. We're going to walk through it in these next few moments. Let me begin this evening by giving you an illustration. It's an important illustration, and it has to do with the way in which God led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. 
Now, I want you to know this, that the way God deals with, e with Israel is also a picture of the way God deals with his child, you, if you're a believer in Christ. For instance, in the history of Israel, Egypt represents bondage. Actually, it's a picture of the bondage of sin, the hold that sin has on us. All these people, what were they crying out? Deliver us. We want a deliverer. How did the deliverance come? It came in the same way that it comes for you and me, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, by the application of the blood of the Lamb. That was just a picture of the Jesus who was to come. And as death moved through Egypt, and God saw that blood sprinkled on the doorpost and over the top of the doorpost and down the side, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over your house and not impute the sentence of death to you. Back in the Garden of Eden, it had been a lamb for a man. Now, on the day of the Passover, it was a lamb for a family. And it was through that that the, God, that the Lord delivered the children of Israel out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt. It's through that that the Lord delivers you and me out of the bondage and slavery of sin at salvation. And then out in the desert, as they begin to wander, it became not only a lamb for a man and a lamb for a family, then on that day of atonement it became a lamb for a nation. And I want to remind you that when Jesus appeared on the scene, it was John the baptizer who looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we have a lamb for the world, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Egypt represents bondage and sin. We are delivered out of that by the blood. The wilderness area represents how it is for believers in Christ, delivered people, who will not day by day obey him. That is the life in the wilderness. The children of Israel were given some specific instructions by the Lord. They refused to obey, and when they refused to obey, they found themselves sentenced to die in the wilderness. They had a curtain, a window of opportunity. They refused to avail themselves of it. That's a reminder that you don't do things on your time. You do it on God's time. You don't come to him and do right when you're good and ready. You come if and when he's ready, or you don't come at all. And so the children of Israel wandered there in the wilderness. And that is a picture of the life of most believers in Christ, delivered from sin, ultimately will go to heaven. But life for them, maybe life for you tonight, is like walking in the wilderness. You have to learn the same lesson, it seems, over and over and over again. And like the wilderness, the wilderness is what? The wilderness is dry, but God feeds you. God gives you water. Like the wilderness, the wilderness is shifting. It's, a, it's just constantly shifting, and that's the way you are. You just, there's a restlessness in your heart. You just can't lock on to what it is and where it is that you ought to be. That's like the wilderness. Like the wilderness out there, when you're living that way, all of your assets become liabilities. That's right, all those things that made you so wonderful and so comfortable back in Egypt or would make you comfortable in Israel or rather in Canaan later on are just the things you have to drag around through the sand in the wilderness. All of your assets become liabilities in the wilderness, all right? So that's a picture of, of a believer in Christ who's sort of doing war with God over God's way in his life. 
Canaan, listen to this, Canaan does not represent heaven, okay? It does not represent heaven. It represents the way you and I can have it on this earth when we quit fighting against God and allow Jesus to be Lord so that we and God fight against the enemy. So when we step over, we speak about Jesus being Lord, that is a step into Canaan. We are at rest. We are where we belong on this earth when we have totally surrendered to Jesus as Lord, all right? Now, I want to remind you, this doesn't mean that your life will be about without battles. In Canaan, there were many battles. Just as in your life, there will be many battles. You see, in Canaan, there were squatters on the land that had to be dispossessed. There were battles. And in your life, there are squatters on the land, so to speak. And you constantly have to dispossess them. You constantly have to war against them in order to have your life the kind of place it ought to be for the Lord God, all right? Now, what does this mean when the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Colossae, what does this mean when he says, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him? I want to make three statements. I'm going to make this as simple as possible. Then we'll have our invitation time. First of all, there is a critical element you must possess. If you're going to win, there is a critical element you must possess. And I'm afraid tonight that some of you don't possess it. I'm afraid that some of you who look the most holy and sound the most religious and come the most faithfully don't possess it. What is that critical element? If you don't have this, there is no way deliverance is possible for you. It is genuine salvation. Genuine salvation. Really being saved. Having come to that point of life, notice he puts, back, puts this in the past tense, as you receive, it's heiress past, that means as you at that point of time in your life receive Christ Jesus the Lord. That's not something you have to do over and over again. He says, I'm going to tell you how to walk in him, but there was that point. You received him, so walk in him. And I believe there are people here, you've been religious, I meet them all the time. You've come to church, you've wanted to go to heaven, you've heard this testimony tonight. But the truth of the matter is there's never come a time in your life when you, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, realized not just that you'd done some bad things, not just that you'd committed some sins, but that you, in your heart of hearts, are a sinner before God. And God is convicting you that your very nature... It's not like if, if you lived in a different place, you'd be a better person. No, that in your very nature there is rottenness. And realizing that, you called upon Jesus, who is the only one who could save you. And Christ, as you trusted in him as Savior and gave your life to him as Lord, Christ entered your life, Savior and Lord, gave you eternal life, gave you forgiveness and cleansing of sin. Old things passed away, all things become new, and now you can no longer get comfortable with sin. I didn't say you were sinless. You just can't get comfortable with sin. And that's what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. As a matter of fact, he says, if a man keeps on committing the same old sins for the same old reason, the same old way, he is not of God. Because when you trust Christ 
He says his seed comes within you and you can't ever go back to that kind of life. Oh, it doesn't mean you won't go back and do some things wrong. It doesn't mean you won't slip and fall, but it means you can never make your bed with sin and lie with it and get by with it if you're a child of God. When you sin, it's not that all of a sudden you quit becoming a child of God. As I said this morning, my, my children are not perfect children and their behavior doesn't have anything to do with whether they're my children any more than it does to do with whether you're a Christian. But it has, because you can't buy God. You can't make God your debtor. You didn't get in and you will not be kept in by your behavior because you can't do something so good that God says, I owe you eternal life for that one. It won't happen. But your obedience has everything to do with your fellowship with him or whether there's discipline applied to your life. And one of the things that ought to scare some of you folks spitless tonight is that you can get by with what you're getting by with and there doesn't seem to be any discipline in your life because of it. You've gone on for years since that day you trusted in Christ and you've just said, I'm a Christian. And it just seems like nothing has changed. You come, you're happy, you've never been found out. You don't really even care about it anymore. You just become very comfortable with that. You ought to seriously question whether you know Christ at all. Because the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you and the searchlight of the Word of God starts shining on every corner of your heart and you can never get comfortable with sin. You can try to hide it. But I tell you, you go out in a barnyard and you find a plank that's laying there on the ground in the middle of the summer and you kick that plank over and you'll see all those creepy crawlies go scurrying for the dark. I want to tell you what, in your heart, when the light shines and you send those creepy crawlies of sin scurrying, God goes after them. God goes after them. And so if you even have, you don't have a prayer except this, that you first have experienced genuine salvation. Now listen carefully, and I want to tell you what happens because of what Jesus does for the person who is saved. And you need to nail this down because it has everything to do with whether you're going to experience deliverance daily. All right, now listen to it. Jesus died. Jesus rose. And the living Jesus chooses, desires to be the Lord of your life. He is Lord. And you'll say that one day in heaven or in hell, but you'll say it because Jesus is Lord. Now, I want you to see how each of those aspects of the Lord's ministry uh, uh, apply to this issue of overcoming sin in your life. Look, by his death, now listen, by his death, Jesus provides for you, he gives to you, deliverance from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? All right, the Bible says it. The wages of sin is death. What did Jesus pay when he died on the cross for you? He paid the penalty for your sin. That's what he does by his death. He pays your penalty. The fact that Jesus died does not make you a Christian. It just set you free so that you might become, if you would, by the drawing of his Holy Spirit, you might receive Christ and have eternal life. So that's why the Bible says that when Jesus died, Christ suffered once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. See, by his death, he is satisfying the penalty. He is delivering you from the penalty of sin, spending a forever in hell, separated from God. God commended his love toward us. The apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. And it's with his death we are set free to become the children of death, of life. Now, but Jesus didn't stay dead. He purchased, or he paid for the penalty by the shedding of his blood. That, that perfect blood of Christ which represents his whole being, which he gave up. He purchased deliverance for us, all right, from the penalty. But then he rose. And it's by his resurrected life that he provides deliverance from the power of sin. You see, a dead Jesus can't give you power, living power. You see, power here does not mean authority. Power here means more than that. He gives you a living dynamic. He gives you deliverance from sin's power. If you don't come to Jesus, first of all, you will pay sin's penalty, which is death. Secondly, your life on this earth will be ordered by sin's power because that's the only power operative in you. For all have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. And so your life not only has the penalty ahead if you don't receive Christ who died for you, that penalty of separation from God forever in hell, but you have ahead of you a life driven by the power of sin. The flesh, we talk about the spirit of the flesh, that is within you, the flesh driving you. When you receive a risen Christ, then his life enters your life. His life was what? Eternal. So your life becomes what? Everlasting. From that point on, it lasts forever. You see? And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Christ in you is the hope of glory. His death, his shed blood delivered you from sin's penalty. His resurrected life delivers you, if you receive him, from sin's power. All right? Now, his lordship in you delivers you from sin's practice. Let not, therefore, sin reign. That means take the lordship position in your mortal bodies. And so when you come before Jesus and you acknowledge him as Lord of your life, then you are set free moment by moment from the practice of sin. Now, let me tell you something. I want you to look this way because you need to hear this. All over the world, Teenagers, university students, my moms and dads, listen. All over their world, there are people who stand. All over the world, teenagers, university students, my moms and dads, listen. All over their world, there are people who stand in line for hours to get in some place to hear somebody talk or to have somebody do something to them or say something to them that is going to give them a zap that they believe is going to let, set them free for the rest of their lives. I mean, it, it's almost a business, isn't it? Almost, well, it is for some, a, an absolute business. 
standing in line, slavishly saying, give me the zap. You know why? Because it scares us to think that life has got to be lived at a day at a time. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. The apostle Paul said, I die, how often? Daily. Moment by moment is what he said. What happened when you became a believer in Christ Jesus as he set you free from sin's penalty and gave you ability to be delivered from sin's power, sin's reign in your life? And as you ascribe lordship to Jesus Christ, who is your Lord, as you worship him moment by moment, he sets you free from sin's practice. But I want to tell you something, friend. That is a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment walk with Jesus. Now listen, there's not anybody here who's going to get enough of anything in any service, from any book, from any man, from any sermon, from any experience, that you're going to get enough that you can afford to coast tomorrow. You can't do it. The moment you think I'm holy enough, I can just cruise through tomorrow. I'm holy enough, I can read that book. It won't affect me. I can watch that. It won't affect me. Listen, friend, you're dead meat for the devil. What I'm wanting you to see is that deliverance is something that God wants you to experience every day. Not just when you get some big, heavy, ugly something in your life that's controlling. Oh, I believe in that. I could tell you experiences of people being set free from those things that have shackled them for years. I could tell you about that. But dear friend, the reason those things get in is because we do not practice daily, moment by moment, dying to self and living to Jesus. Surrendering our lives to his lordship. I want to tell you something. Discipleship is something we hate. You know why? Because it takes a lifetime. And we're in a world that wants everything right now. We want it right now. We want to drive in. I mean, some people, if they could, if they could do it, they'd, they'd get a drive-in church. You just drive through. You confess. You know, sort of one of those toot and tells or you know where you go. Uh, you know, just drive through and you just get it. You know, bam. People would love that. They just want quick religion. I was reading Jim Standard's article in the newspaper this morning. And I couldn't disagree with anything more. He said the NCAA did wrong. They should have held to their guns and said religion has no place in football games. Hey, I got news for you. If you're a born-again believer, religion, Christ, is your life. There's not a secular life. God doesn't divide up and say there's the football field and there's the tennis court and there's the bank and there's the doctor's office and then there's church. God says it is your life. Moment by moment. And so the reality is this. If you don't possess salvation, you're not availing yourself of his death, of his life, or of his lordship. You see? You won't have deliverance. All right, number two. There is a compelling exhortation we must ponder. He says here, I want, he get, it's an exhortation. It's even an exhortation language, if you could see it in the original. He says... As you have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. That's an exhortation. Now, there's two things I want you to see here very quickly, then we'll move on. He speaks, first of all, of salvation as a point. I mentioned this a while ago. As you have, past tense, point in time, like a period, as you have received Christ. 
So walk ye in him. There's a point, but there is a progress. One of the evidences that you are truly a child of God is that there is progress in your walk with God. Are you listening? One of the evidences that you are truly a child of God is that there is progress in your walk with God. If you go back two years and say, no progress. You go back three years and say, well, I was not studying the Bible as well as I was then. Go back five years, go back six years. If you're no more obedient, no more surrendered, no more generous, no more a student of God's Word, no more excited, thrilled to be with, no more a witness. If you're no more, but in fact, in many ways, you may find yourself tonight less on a continual basis of what you were when you first came to know Jesus, then, dear friend, did you really come to know Jesus? You see, you're not saved by your works. You never will be. The whole fourth chapter of Romans points that out. You can't make God a debtor to you. But if you're saved, your works will give evidence of that. That's why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? That's why he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father who sent me. You see, faith works. You're not saved by your works, but you are saved by a kind of faith that produces works. If you're sitting here and, and you've excused, you say, I'm just one of those backsliders, you might all ask if you ever front slid. Because there is a point, but there's also a progress. And I've known of people who, who will go to hell one of these days and say, yeah, preacher, I can remember when I got saved. Yeah, back there, you know, it's back there revival time. Well, yeah, I guess I'm one of your backsliders. Listen, 1 John 2, 19 says, they went out from us, but they weren't of us. For if they'd been of us, they no doubt would have remained with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Is there progress? And what does progress involve? Progress is this. Progress is allowing God to shine the searchlight of His Word by His Spirit into every corner of my heart and then for me, by His grace, to make the adjustment necessary. That's progress. What is not progress? Progress is having God tell you there's sin in your life and for you to sit here, you know, stone-faced in this service tonight and say, I know it, and do nothing about it. That is not progress. Can you honestly say Jesus lives in you and is your Lord if you are unwilling to do anything about the very issues His Holy Spirit is convicting you in right now? You say, Brother Tom, that's very severe. That's just Bible, folks. That's just what's wrapped up in the whole issue of Jesus being our Lord. And you know, it's so easy for us to, to get so insensitive about our sins while we're so insensitive to the sins of others. Well, they do this and this and this. I would never do that, but what would you do? What are you doing? How are you living? Where is that secret little closet in your heart that you've shut off from God and said, no, sir, don't disturb where is it? Where do you have it hidden away in your life? It's like a boat anchor to your progress. 
You're just making none. You know that God is not under any obligation to show you anything further until you operate on the basis of what he's already shown you. You can't say, well, God hasn't... When somebody says, Brother Tom, God's just not speaking to me, the issue is not what's wrong with God, it's what's wrong in your heart. God's not under any obligation to tell you anything until you respond to what he's told you. If you, you know, we get this idea that God just had this constant conversation with Abraham. The best we can tell, God only spoke to Abraham 11 times. And by the way, the next time was always after he completed what God told him to do the, the previous time. God spoke to him, said, go sacrifice your son. God didn't speak to him again for three days. Third day on that mountain, a beautiful picture of salvation. When Abraham had done what God said, God spoke to him again. So there's a point. All of us love to tell about the point. What about the progress? What about the progress? You say, Brother Tom, I confess I'm in the wilderness, walking around the same mountains, having learned the same lesson over and over again. When will I get out? When will I get out? Well, it can happen. Now, finally, this evening, let me just say this. There is a clear example by which you must proceed. We said this critical element is what? Salvation. All right? This, this compelling uh, exhortation, what is it? Walk, make progress. And so we have this clear example by which we must proceed. What is that example? It is the example of your salvation. Now listen to the words again. He's saying this, the way you got saved, walk that way. Is he saying get saved over and over again every day? No. He's saying the same procedure by which you came to know me and your life was set free from the penalty and the power and can be from the practice of sin, that same thing will set you free from any stronghold in your life. You can be delivered. Yes, sir, you can be delivered tonight. Yes, ma'am. That can happen right here tonight. You say, well, Brother Tom, you know, I raised my hand. I didn't really, you know, I didn't, you know, I'm just saying I want to be like everybody else, but you know, don't you? You know what it is, where the closet is. You know where it is. You know where the boat anchor in your life, what's tied you up, kept you from moving ahead. And you can be set free tonight. But you see, the way is to daily, daily walk using the same method by which we got saved, the same procedure. Now, we didn't get saved by method. Everybody's salvation experience, if you're truly born again, everybody here has a different testimony. But you know something? If you're truly saved, there are some things about your testimony, my testimony, the testimony of every truly saved person here, there's some things about that that are going to be absolutely in common because they all have to be a part of salvation. Do you get it? Do you really get it? And so, how do I walk? How do I walk into victory? How do I walk delivered? How do I walk free from these bully sins? How can I get set free from that? All right, how did you get saved? Here's what happened when you got saved. Now, you might have been outside, inside, at home, at church, in a crusade, in a Sunday school class. That might, that's irrelevant. But I want to tell you, here's what happened. It started out when God, because of his love, sent the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. That's where it started. You see, we love God because he first loved us. Jesus says, I stand the knock. 
and knock at the door. Well, that's his taking the initiative. And your salvation didn't start when you woke up one day and said, hey, I'm so smart. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. You'd have never thought any of that if God hadn't put it in you. And it all started when God, by, you say that's not true. Yes, it is. Jesus said, all the Father gives to me will come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Somebody says, well, you could probably leave. No. Next two verses down, he says, and this is the will of him that sent me, that of all he's given me, I should lose none. You say, how do I know? Well, have you come to it? You see, all the Father gives to him will come to him. Have you come to him? If you did, it's because God spoke to your heart out of love and brought conviction. We call it sometimes Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit conviction to your heart. And you know why there are so many people who later on in life come down the aisle and confess, I'm a sinner, I need to get saved, but I made a decision early. You know why? Because we have so synthesized Christianity that we've made into a formula. And we, we race people through the whole issue of the Holy Ghost conviction of sin. I mean, we've made this thing into, and just, a, uh, I mean, we just race through this thing. Let me tell you about how some of you folks got saved. Come up here for just a moment. I'll just show you. This is about how it happened with some of you folks here tonight. Here I've got a track. This track is called Five Ways to Get Saved. You know, here's a little track. I'm actually going to use my billfold here. A little track. And I just walk up to you and say, Sir, sir have, I ever heard, have I ever told you about the five ways to get saved? No, you haven't. Oh, I haven't. Okay, well, see, I just want to tell you. See, the first thing happened. Oh, excuse me, I dropped my track. Would you pick that up? Okay, now just pray after me. Jesus, I want to ask you into my heart. Thank you. Thanks for giving this back to you. Talk to you later, man. So somebody says, you're saved. Listen, it's not your business to tell anybody they're saved. That's God's business. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 1 John 4, 13 says, This is the way we know we are in Him and He in us, in that He has given us of His Spirit. And if God's Spirit is not witnessing with your spirit that you are a child of God, friend, you better wake up, sit up, listen, and get saved. God convicted you, you're a sinner. And then God in His love, through His Word, someplace along the way, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word God speaks, through his love, God showed you the provision. Somebody might have come to your house. Somebody might have preached a sermon. You might have read it in a book. You might have read it in the Bible. That Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, died on a cross. And with his death, he paid for sin's penalty. And he made it possible for you to be delivered from the power and the practice of sin. To have forgiveness of sin, cleansing of sin, eternal life. And that story washed over you like cold water to a thirsty person. It was good news to you. What did you do? If you got saved, you might have waited a while, you might have waited a year, you might have waited a week, you might have been under conviction for a long time, but if you're truly saved at some point in your life, listen, you trusted Jesus with all. You gave it to him. Lord, I can't save myself. I'm giving you my life as it is. We sing that hymn, just as I am without one plea. You just gave him your life and said, God, I confess my sin, Jesus, Savior, and Lord, I give it to you. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Okay, let's say you've got some habit in your life, and you're saying, well, here it is. It's Monday morning. Preacher preached last night. 
as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. And you're driving down the street, and uh, somebody sitting in your car tells some kind of story that reminds you of a dirty joke. Or you see something that reminds you of a thought that ought not to be there. Or you're going to the office and you say, I know the moment I get to that office, I'm going to be tempted to pull off a deal in order to get a contract and move ahead in this company. I'm going to have to compromise my conviction. What do you do about that? You say, or I'm going to, it's going to be an eating problem or a drinking problem or, or some other little habit that you think is a little habit but killing you. What are you going to do with that? You know it's a problem only because God's Holy Spirit is convicting you of it. What did you do when God's Holy Spirit convicted you that you were a sinner? You found in the Word what God had to say about it. You found in the Word that Jesus was the answer, that He was the deliverer, that He was the provider. What did you do then? You gave yourself to Him. You gave yourself to him. You believed upon him. What happened? You were delivered. What do I do tomorrow? What do I do tomorrow? Five times, ten times, twenty times, thirty times if I have to. God convicts me. I know where the answer is. It's in Jesus. Oh, dear God, as an act of faith, totally against everything my sensual flesh is telling me, I acknowledge the Lordship of Christ in my life. I'm going to walk forward in the Lordship of Jesus. My dear friend, you can go to every conference you want on warfare and strongholds and all that other gobbledygook, which is true. You need it. But boil it all down, that's the answer. I'm in sin. What I'm doing is sinful. I know how I got saved from the penalty and the power. How do, I, how do I deal with the practice of sin? As you've received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. What's involved? Lord, your blood overcame all sin, even the sin that I'm about to commit if something doesn't happen. It's your blood. Lord, I'm trusting in you. It's your name that is above every name because, Lord, your word. You see there, the word, the name, and the blood, three things the devil hates. Why? because they are all absolute authority over the devil. When God says it, the devil has to bow. When Jesus shows up, the devil has to bow. When he is reminded of the blood, he has to run because it purchased us out of his hand. I'm convicted. The Word says it's wrong. But the Word says that as I live and surrender to you, I have power over the practice of sin. And so Jesus, that sin, that stronghold, that temptation, whatever it is that's in my life. I bow before you in absolute lordship, thanking you for your shed blood which bought the, me out of the penalty of sin, for your resurrected life which gives me power over the practice of sin. Dear friend, as you just surrender and surrender and surrender and surrender to his lordship, you will be moment after moment after moment delivered. That's right. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. But in your heart tonight, I think many of you would say there's sin. For some, it's a sin of unbelief or, or hard-hearted. 
You don't want to go down there and admit that you're lost. You need to get saved. I don't know what it is. But right now, you ought to go before God and say, Dear God in heaven, those things which are in my life, which constantly beat up on me, I want to acknowledge that it's sin. I want to make no room for it. I want, to, I want there to be no place in my heart for it. I want cleansing from it. Dear Jesus, you bought that on the cross with your blood. The Word says it. The Holy Spirit convicted me of it. And I bow before you as Lord, my Lord, giving myself to you. As you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. Father in heaven, how I pray tonight, your Holy Spirit, would move in power, dear Lord, power. I pray, Lord, you'd bring this all to those who need to get saved, those who have just said, look, I, you know, I prayed some prayer someplace, never changed, not one iota. Lord, I pray tonight they would be rescued. Lord, I pray others would see that one of the greatest things you put in our lives to help us live the life we ought to live is the, your, your assembly, the church. And Lord, it is there that we become accountable one to another. And there that your Holy Spirit encourages us and speaks to us and loves us, comforts us, and cautions us. So, Lord, we know an important step to growing as a believer is being part of the church. And, Lord, I pray that there would be those who'd say, I need to openly confess Christ through baptism. Others would say, I need to join the church. Others who simply need to come find a counselor and say, look, I want to deal with that bully in my life that keeps beating me up, driving a wedge in the fellowship, the wonderful open fellowship I want to have with God. Lord, there is no person that needs to leave this place tonight having not been delivered. By the authority of your word, I say that. Because of your precious shed blood upon the cross of Calvary, I say it. And because your word says it, I say it. In the name of Jesus, I stand against every spirit that would bring distraction or frustration that would bring doubt or fear or disbelief. And in the name of Jesus, I ask you, Heavenly Father, to send your Holy Spirit in this place to move in the heart of every one of us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you stand to your feet? Would you make up your mind right now, standing right there? Would you ask the Lord, Lord, I am convicted. How do you want me to respond? How do you want me to respond? And would you prepare for some of you? It means you're going to have to slip out in the aisle, make your way forward, find a counselor. Some who want to trust Christ, you come find a counselor and say, look, I want to trust Jesus. That's all. They'll talk with you and pray with you. If you need to get to this altar and say, dear God, there's areas of my life where it's obvious you are not being allowed because of my indifference to assert the lordship that you deserve. I want to give it up to you tonight. I'm convicted by it. If you need to join this church, you come find a counselor and say, look, I want to join this church. We want to join this church tonight. What would God have you do? Will you do it? You see, the refusal to do it is just one other sign, isn't it? That you can talk about the Lordship of Jesus all you want. But if he's spoken and said, this is it, dear friend, that means this is it, right? Be saved. Get involved. Come to this altar. Your invitation. Father, Bring us to this altar, I pray in Jesus' name.